O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch comes tender, becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of you here after Thanksgiving. Thank you for being here. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray, as always, that the words of my mouth, the meditations, the thoughts of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Growing up in the 1980s, my parents watched the local 10 p.m. newscast every evening because that was one of the few ways that you had available to figure out what was going on in the world. You read the paper, usually morning and evening, and then you watched the local news. It's hard to imagine a time like that now with no internet, no Twitter, no texting, no cable news stations operating 24 hours a day, no social media at all. All we had was Linda Cavanaugh out of Oklahoma City, 10 p.m. every night, and she would always begin in the exact same way. She would say, good evening, it's 10 o'clock. Do you know where your children are? What kind of question is that? What was happening in the 1980s? Do you know where your children are? I have three apps on my phone right now that tell me where my children are. I could probably figure out their, their heart rate right now if I wanted to know what was going on with my children. So do you know where your children are? I, was, I asked my parents, were there just a bunch of bad parents in the 1980s? But regardless, it was always this ominous beginning to the newscast. 
that did at least two things. Emphasized the lateness of the hour and suggested judgment, some kind of reckoning. For the parents, if they didn't know where their children were and, and weren't protecting them as they should, or even for the children who potentially could be out at that late hour and, not, and be doing something they shouldn't be doing. So do you know where your children are? Because it's late and, and it's dark and, and maybe there's something happening, about to happen to them that you are unaware of. This very ominous beginning to the news. And Advent is similar. It always sounds this ominous note as it begins the church calendar year after year. In many ways, doing the same thing as that newscast, emphasizing the lateness of the hour and suggesting that a judgment or a reckoning is coming. In fact, that's what the word Advent means. At the beginning of worship, each and every Sunday, we'll say, Advent means coming. And many of you probably associate it with the first coming of Jesus as a baby in the manger in Bethlehem, born as God to the Virgin Mary. But Advent emphasizes not Jesus coming as a baby, but Jesus coming as the resurrected, the crucified and resurrected King, coming to judge the world in all its sin and darkness and sickness and death and to set the world right because it's not right. So Advent is a time to prepare for that. For Jesus' second coming, telling us always the hour is late and judgment comes. How different a mood that creates here in worship compared to the general holiday spirit and mood outside of worship. Because in the world outside, Christmas shopping has begun. And, and parties, holiday parties of all kinds and all sorts, that's what's upon us, not judgment. And vacations are just around the corner. Many of you probably turned your Christmas lights on just the day or so ago. And if you go anywhere now, radio stations or, or into the, the stores to shop, you're going to hear Andy Williams singing, it's the most wonderful time of the year. And here in worship, we're going to hear the hour is late and the son of man comes. And what a different type of mood. And so how can we keep Advent with, with, with the, the palpable dissidence that exists between what we're doing in here and what's happening outside? How can we keep it in a unique and distinct way so that it marks us as much as we mark it? Well, three points this morning. First of all, we have to heed the reality, truly heed it. Matthew 24, which Craig read for you. Thank you, Craig, for reading this long reading. Uh, it's notoriously hard to interpret or at least there's lots of disagreement about it. It begins with Jesus in the temple in, in verse one. And he's, it says that Jesus left the temple and was going away. And it's very intentional language for Matthew. And it's meant to be read literally that that is what he was doing, but also figuratively that he was moving away from it because at the end of chapter 23, Jesus has already lamented over Jerusalem and lamented over the temple because of the historical hard-heartedness of God's people at that time because they had turned the worship of God in the temple into some sort of spiritually dead performance of some type of religious art, one that was perfunctory and obligatory that made some people lots and lots of money. He cleansed the temple because there are people in there making it a house of robbers, cleansing it for all the money that they were making, but also the political power that it was ensuring for some people. And the point is that many in Israel didn't want to have any real engagement with God. They were using God to get something that they wanted. They especially didn't want to have anything to do with him as he was revealing himself in and through Jesus. And so Jesus weeps over this at the end of 23, chapter 23. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets historically, 
and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen under her wings, but you were unwilling. You were unwilling. And that's the concern of Advent year after year. In fact, that's the way it always begins. That's the mood. That's the very reason for this season of Advent, human unwillingness, spiritual unwillingness, moral unwillingness by people just like you and just like me to be gathered together to God, to be brought near to him and loved by him and protected by him and guided by him. Rather, we would prefer just like the people of that day to go it alone on our own in this world, pretending that the inevitable consequences of living life apart from him and without him will somehow not come upon us. Do you know the story of, by Flannery O'Connor called Good Country People? Do you know this story? If you've been around All Saints for very long at all, you've, you've heard of this story before. I always think of Flannery O'Connor in Advent because her stories always make you wonder, is this a story of judgment or a story of redemption? And Good Country People is no different. It's about this woman named Helga. And Helga is as unattractive as her name sounds. No offense to any Helgas in the audience this morning. But she has Coke bottle glasses and she's overweight and has this prosthetic leg. And in her weight and in her disability, she's meant to sound immovable, just like the, the stones of the temple there in Jerusalem that we've read of. But she's even more ugly and immovable on the inside than she is on the outside. She embodies this human unwillingness that Jesus speaks about. She's unwilling to be influenced by anyone or anything outside of her because she in her own mind is intellectually brilliant. She's educated. She's been to the city and to the great university elsewhere. And she looks down upon all the good country people. She sees them as ignorant and unrefined and stupid, especially if they're Christians. And then one day, a man comes knocking on her door. His name is Manly Pointer. And he comes to sell her a Bible and to be the one, the man, who points her in the way that this immovable blind girl should go. But will she move? She's, she's Helga. She's unwilling. She's immovable. Just like Jerusalem. Just like Jesus speaks of it. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered your children to me, but you were unwilling. And that's what prompts what Jesus says here in chapter 24. He weeps over Jerusalem, and then he walks away from the temple. And as he walks away, his disciples are, are calling him back to it, saying, look at these stones. Look at this beautiful building. Look at, look at its magnificence. Can you believe the stones of this building? And Jesus stops right there, turns around to them, and says, not one of these stones that's so amazing to you will be left on top of one another. They are all coming down. And, and the disciples can't even begin to imagine what it is that he's talking about. Those stones were massive and they seemed utterly immovable. Archaeologists have discovered them and they're not even sure how the ancient Jews moved them to the place where they built the temple. They were so big. Some of them were 45 feet long and 15 feet thick. 10 to 11 feet tall, absolutely massive, so big they just used dry construction just to stack one on top of one another because they were so heavy, their, their sheer weight would keep them in place until what Jesus predicts happened, and it did happen. 37 years after he said this in AD 70, the Roman general Titus marched into Jerusalem and pulled every single enormous stone down, tore the temple down and burned it until there was nothing left. And I wonder, 
What is it that you have lost that's like that? Something that large and that significant. Something that has operated or or acts like the very center of your life, that which gives you meaning and purpose, that which is most cherished by you and orients you, it's, it's most beloved, that which in your eyes is most marvelous and impressive, that which you want everyone to see and everyone to enjoy and people to even to applaud. Because you have something. We all have something just like this. But we often don't realize that that's what it is for us until it's threatened or suddenly taken away from us like the tragic death of a loved one, that one person who, who orients your life, that one person that you even speak about as your world or your center, because we use language like that. Or the loss of that job, which had become your meaning and your purpose, that, that job without which you wonder, who am I or, or what's my purpose or what, what worth do I have? Or the loss of that relationship that was that for you. Maybe now you're single again for the first time in a while, or maybe you're widowed or now divorced. Or maybe it's your reputation that's been lost. Others respect for you because you did that thing. That one thing that you thought you would never do. Or at least that one thing or that series of things that you thought no one would ever find out about. But they found out about it. And now you're next to nothing in their eyes. And because you're next to nothing in their eyes, you're next to nothing, if anything, at all in your own eyes. So what is that thing for you? Because we have it. And and when ancient Israel lost the temple, they thought that they had lost everything. And in one sense, they had lost everything because life was utter chaos and they were unmoored and and there was a lack of meaning and direction after its destruction. But Jesus had already told them that it was nothing and meant nothing apart from him. And he was going to show them that it was nothing apart from him and tear it down, which he did. And so again, what have you lost like that? Advent insists on the reality that in our sin and our brokenness, we all have something like this. We all have our temple. Until we don't. Until we don't. And when we don't, we know it's Advent. And we know Christ is near and at work. Advent as a season officially begins today, but Advent as a reality is always happening for some people. It's always Advent for some people. So is it for you? If it is, you have to heed. You have to acknowledge and embrace its reality. As well as its signs. And that leads us to point two, imagining the setting. Have to heed its reality and then imagine the setting. So much of our passage is about signs. It's a setting filled with signs. Signs that something is coming and people are unaware of it. Because after Jesus shockingly predicts that the temple will be torn down, the disciples come to him and they say, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of the end of the coming of the age. And this is what makes Matthew 24 so difficult to interpret because Jesus is clearly talking about the temple here and the loss and the destruction of it, as well as the end of of all Jewish life and religion and and culture as they had known it for hundreds and hundreds of years. So if it's about that, if it's about Jewish life and culture up until that time, why would Matthew keep it in the Christian scriptures? What would be its application for Christians living after its destruction? The only reason that would be kept in the scriptures is if, if Jesus was talking about more than just the destruction of Jerusalem. And he was. He was certainly talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And you need to know it was horrific. It was really unimaginable by modern standards. Ancient historian Josephus said that as many as a million Jews were killed by the Romans. And modern scholars think that he was embellishing the numbers. And maybe he was, but even modern scholars will say at least 500,000 Jews were killed. 
And we also know that thousands upon thousands were crucified and hung to die outside of Jerusalem, lining the road. So imagine that. It was difficult enough for us to see those temporary morgues outside of the hospitals during the pandemic. Imagine thousands of people hanging crucified. So of course Jesus would want his original followers to know that this was coming and to escape that. And he predicts that, but he's also using this judgment that he knew would fall upon Jerusalem as a framework for what will happen to all people at the end of human history and his second coming. And that's the application for us. That what happened at Jerusalem will also eventually happen to all people. That's the application. There are four signs that Jesus gives here in Matthew 24 to help his original disciples understand that this is what's coming with Jerusalem, but also to help us understand that this is what's going to come for the whole world. And the first one is this sign or this image of the fig tree, which he uses to say to them and to us, the time is near. It's near. Because there's only two trees in Israel. If you've been to Palestine, some of you may know this. There's only two trees that are not evergreen trees. One's the almond tree and one's the fig tree. They both lose their leaves in the middle of winter during the rainy season. But the almond tree, at the beginning of spring, its new leaves come. But then the fig tree, at the end of spring, it's when its leaves come. So they know that summer is almost upon them when they see the fig leaves tree. And that's what Jerusalem, or that's what Jesus was saying about Jerusalem and even the end of time, that the time is near. And then there's these other images in verses 37 through 44 that are about the time is not simply near, but also unknowable. You can't know exactly when it's coming. It's near, but also unknowable. And those images are Noah's flood, a normal workday, and a thief coming in the night. That was true for the destruction of Jerusalem, but also for the second coming. And here's the point for us, for you. And that is we Christians, if we're going to live a unique and distinct life today, we Christians are to live now as those original disciples lived then, before the destruction of Jerusalem, knowing it's coming, knowing the time is near, but not knowing exactly when the time would come. They had to live lives of expectation and readiness for the world as they knew it to end. And so do you live like that? Do you live in expectation and readiness that the world as you know it can and will someday end and suddenly you'll meet God? face-to-face. Even as I ask that, I, I think, oh, they probably don't. We, we really don't. But do we ever wonder why we don't live lives of expectation and readiness? The second of these signs, the sign of Noah's flood that Jesus mentions here, I think it tells us why most of us don't live lives of expectation and readiness. So look at that sign in chapter 24 verse 37. It's also a vivid parallel to Jesus's sudden coming with judgment at his second coming. And what does it say in verse 38 that the people were doing when the judgment of the flood came? What's it say that they were doing? Eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Now, why were they doing that? Well, verse 39 says, because they were unaware of what was upon them. Unaware until suddenly the flood came and swept them away, verse 39. And the second coming, Jesus is saying, will be just like that. He's saying it will happen in seemingly normal times, that it's near, it's unknowable, and it will happen when everything seems normal, normal enough for parties to be thrown and normal enough for weddings to be planned. 
This is what Frederick Del Brenner says about this. And listen, he says, the crime indicated by Jesus here in this verse is not gross sin. It's secular indifference. The people in Noah's generation are not doing vicious things in Jesus's description. The sin of Noah's generation was not wedding parties. It was nonchalance about God. The evil here is immersion in the everyday without thought for the last day. He says it's nonchalance about God. And I wonder, is that a fair description of us and our relationship with God? Nonchalance. Do you know that word? It's a, it's a cool sounding French loan word, nonchalance. Sounds really kind of cool. But it comes from this Latin word that means to be hot, calaire. So nonchalant means not hot, cool, calm, not excited, not caring, not concerned, casual, indifferent, but about God. Who has the luxury of being nonchalant about God? Not people who are suffering, not people for whom this world as it now is feels like it's crushing them, or, or those who feel that their own faults and failures and brokenness and sin is crushing them or the lives of those around them. Just 10 days ago, right here, I led the service, the funeral service for a dear friend and a church member, Carrie McDonald. She died at 44 years old of a respiratory aneurysm suddenly. And in my homily, I pointed out that Jesus' first words in the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached, those first words are, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. And I asked them the question, why would Jesus begin his sermon like that? It's the first public words that he speaks. Why would the first words of that sermon be, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn? And I told him that the first words, that he, those are the first words because it's only those who are poor in spirit or those who are mourning who will listen to the rest of what he has to say because they know that they need him. They know that they need that help. They don't have the luxury of being nonchalant about him or in this context, the second coming of Jesus. They will want it and they will look for it because they know that they need it. Just like war crime victims in Ukraine, they will not be nonchalant about God. Over... Thanksgiving holiday, my sister who works at a university in Oklahoma City, she brought six or seven uh, college students, international college students to Thanksgiving. Uh, one was from Poland, one was from Israel, one was from Germany and Japan, a couple of them for California, and that qualifies as a foreign country, so they were all there. And we were going around the table and asking them where they were from and what questions and confusions they had about Thanksgiving. You don't realize how confusing Thanksgiving is to people who are not from this country. But we got to the final young lady and we asked her where she was from and she said, I'm from Ukraine. And everything got real quiet. And we began to ask her other questions. And she and her family left Ukraine as soon as the war began, but her grandparents are still there just outside of the capital city. We continue to ask her these questions. And at some point she said, I don't want to talk about this anymore because this is a celebration. I don't want to run the celebration. But she and her family don't have the luxury of being nonchalant about God. Who will be nonchalant about God? This passage tells us it's people who are living easy, comfortable, self-indulgent lives. Lives of eating and drinking. Lives of wedding receptions. Lives that go from one party to the next party to the next party. 
And think about it. Who would be looking for God to come and to overturn the world and to set it to right if that's the type of life that you're living? It would feel like life is already pretty much set right. Life is pretty good without God. So who would be looking for him to come and to set the world right? Because life would already be right for you. Jesus doesn't say that the people of Noah's day were killing and stealing. He says that they were eating and drinking. That's what's most characteristic about them. Lives of security and sensuality and secular preoccupations in the midst of everyday normal life. And then all of a sudden, God comes. And you're there with him face to face. This is the setting that he wants for us to imagine about what it will be like when Jesus returns. And it shouldn't be too hard for people like us living in Austin, Texas, to imagine this setting. And think about what Jesus is saying and think about where we live. Austin is one of the destination wedding capitals of the country. It's one of the greatest party cities in our country, if not in the world. People literally come from all over the world to do exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Eating and drinking and getting married. And they do it here. And so the normalcy of this secular indifference that Jesus speaks about is arguably more normal for us than it is for anyone else, potentially making us more nonchalant about God than anyone else. But what can make us into a people who aren't nonchalant about God and help us keep Advent and mark it in a way that it marks us? In other words, as the Apostle Paul says, what can wake us up if we need to be woken up and lead us, point three, to make the changes we need to make, not just to heed the reality and imagine the setting, but to make the changes we need to make and be prepared for when Jesus returns. Because we know the changes that we need to make. They're different for each of us. But let's be honest, we know what those changes are. It's not hard to figure out. We know what those changes are. Or loved ones around you know what those changes are, and they'll tell you. They're telling you if you would just listen to them. But the Apostle Paul in Romans 13 says that those changes revolve around three things, interestingly connecting not only to Matthew 25 or 24, but also to our life today. And he says it revolves around partying, eating and drinking again, our sexual lives, and then our relationships, which he speaks about in that day as being quarrelsome and fighting. And if anything's true about us in our culture today, it's that we are a quarrelsome people. And so partying, sex, and quarreling so again, what could make us nonchalant about God and to make these changes? Well, maybe losing our glasses and our leg. Because in that story, good country people, Manly Pointer, the smarmy Bible salesman, he begins to seduce Helga, this unattractive, unwilling, immovable, immovable, highly educated atheist. Eventually, he coaxes her up into a hayloft, which is a very precarious place for a young, nearly blind, physically disabled girl to be. But he has her up there and he opens up his New Testament, but it's hollowed out in the shape of a whiskey bottle. And he, he pulls the whiskey bottle out of this hollowed out Bible. He takes a long pull on it and then he takes off her glasses. And then he slowly removes her prosthetic leg. And then without any warning, he takes them and he goes down the ladder and runs away with her glasses and her leg in hand. And there she is, all alone now, truly all alone, blind, broken, helpless, leading 
Flannery O'Connor, I think, to want us to ask the question, is this judgment or is this redemption? That through which she sees the world is now gone. That upon which she stood up, stood in her mind above and, and better than all the good country people. It's now been removed. She can't see, she can't stand. So is this judgment or is this salvation? Is mainly point to her judge or her savior? And what's the answer? The answer is yes. The answer is always yes. You know this at this point. It's yes if Helga's judgment turns her into someone who is poor in spirit and mourning. If the loss of her glasses and her leg would wake her up spiritually and and lead her to, to recognize the needs that she has, that she now knows that she has, and to grope in the darkness for that which can actually rescue her. Because in some ways... And this is what Flannery O'Connor wants us to see. Jesus is like mainly pointer, as strange as that sounds, because judgment and salvation can't be fully separated with Jesus because you have to know that you are under judgment before you will receive the salvation that's offered. And make no mistake, Jesus loves you that much. He loves you that much and he wants you that much that he will take whatever it is away from you that he has to in order for you to receive him and his salvation and to want him like he wants you. He'll go to the nth degree. He's already gone to the nth degree. He's already done everything necessary for you to receive him. He's already given up everything and had everything taken away from him so that you'll receive him. He gave up his life. He gave us his relationship with God the Father. He suffered under the burden, our burden of sin and darkness and death and hell. He endured his own judgment for you so that you might receive him and the very life that he offers. And so what changes can you make now? Whatever it is, you know what it is, but that's what can help you make it. Knowing and believing and seeing that. Because you cannot live a uniquely distinct Christian life unless you believe in the second coming and you allow it to affect you. So allow it to affect you. Use Advent. Keep Advent. Mark it as a unique and distinct time. Make it a month-long preparation for meeting Jesus, not as a baby, but as a thief in the night, the judge of all the world who has already come for you. And here's a few ideas to help you. Number one, come to worship. You've already done the first thing. Well done. Number one, come to worship. There's three more Sundays in Advent. Be here. Secondly, read the scriptures and pray with others during Advent in ways that you you may not often do. And third, spend time with someone who's currently suffering under some loss. Spend time with someone who is already poor in spirit and mourning. And then fourthly, cast off something that's making you nonchalant with God. Again, you know what it is. You know what it is. Cast off something that makes you nonchalant with God and do these in hope. Because again, the judge who will come has already come. He's already come for you and died for you and been raised for you. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would make us nonchalant with you and that you would do so in order that we might truly see you and understand you and receive you, believe you to be who you are as you reveal yourself here. So even as you draw near to us, draw us near to you, even as we gather around your table. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.